Cancer Research UK Cambridge Centre podcast. The Cancer Research UK Cambridge Centre unites over a thousand world-leading biologists, chemists, physicists, engineers, mathematicians, computer scientists, clinicians, nurses and allied healthcare professionals from across Cambridge and the UK to tackle cancer from every angle. Our mission is to end death and disease caused by cancer through research, treatment and education. We are detecting cancer at its earliest stage and are developing personalised treatments for every patient through facilitating new collaborations and driving the translation of new scientific discoveries into clinical applications to improve patient care. By working together across a range of different disciplines, our members are breaking down the barriers between the laboratory and the clinic, enabling patients to benefit from the very latest innovations in cancer science. Hello, welcome, and thanks for joining us for today's special episode of our podcast, where we have a series of four short talks for you about patient and public involvement in research. And these were delivered at our annual Experimental Cancer Medicine Demystified event for the general public earlier this year. So in the first talk, you're going to hear from Jean Mullen, who is the lead Cancer Research UK research nurse at Cambridge University Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust. And Jean's going to be speaking to us about the Patient and Public Involvement Group, which is also known as a PPI group, at the Cancer Research UK Cambridge Centre and the Cambridge Experimental Cancer Medicine Centre. In the second talk, you're going to hear from Liz Chipchase, who was an esophageal cancer patient whose disease was detected through her involvement in our Cytosponge sponge clinical trial. And Liz is going to give a fantastic and really personal talk about her motivations for getting involved in PPI work. You're then going to hear a bit of research. So Dr. Katal McCaig, who's a Wellcome Trust Research Associate and PhD student at the University of Cambridge and Honorary Radiology Registrar at Cambridge University Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust. And he's going to be telling us about his exciting research into using artificial intelligence in ovarian cancer care. Then we have Neil Stutchbury, who's a member of our PPI group and also lead governor at Cambridge University Hospitals and Neil's going to be sharing how patients and members of the public helped to shape Katal's research project. Then finally, to wrap up, Katie Mills, a programme manager at the Cambridge Experimental Cancer Medicine Centre, leads a question and answer session where our panellists answer questions that were submitted by members of the public. Now, don't forget, if you've got any questions that you'd like us to answer in a future podcast episode, or perhaps if you have ideas for topics that you'd like us to discuss in a future series, please let us know by visiting our website at www.crukcambridgecentre.org.uk forward slash podcast. And with that, I'm going to hand over to Jean for the first talk. My name is Jean Mullen and I'm the Cancer Research UK Senior Research Nurse. I've been asked to give a very brief overview of the group and what we do before introducing two members to you. The ECMC Patient and Public Involvement Group was first discussed in August 2016 in response to an identified gap in patient and public involvement for early research. 
we have a lot of great basic science and ideas here in Cambridge. So we wanted to be able to offer the scientists carrying out that work the opportunity to engage with patients from a very early stage. Right from the start of building the group, we sought PPI involvement on how the process should be developed. So we've been guided in the whole journey by patient and public. We held our first official meeting in June 2018 with five members. Since then, we have grown to a group of 15. But we are always looking for new members. So if this is something you think you might be interested in, please do get in touch. Well, before the pandemic, we were meeting face to face about every three months. The meetings consisted of presentations for discussions uh, by scientists and an educational slot. So we were growing our knowledge base at the same time. Over the past two years, we've had to adapt. Initially, we had very few requests for our service, but gradually as things have started to get back to normal, the group's work has been increasing and we've adapted to the new world of Zoom. I just want to mention a couple of the ideas we have been involved in. We have reviewed a project which was a feasibility study looking at real-time genomic profiling from circulating tumour DNA collection and with that real-time information how it might impact on clinical treatment decisions for patients with metastatic cancer. Another project was about artificial intelligence for multi-cancer screening, where we were able to input what we thought the challenges might be and consider some ethical implications. So we have reviewed some very interesting and exciting projects. And we are often also reviewing patient information leaflets, helping scientists to understand what information patients might need and how to explain it so that patients can have a better understanding. I would now like to introduce Liz Chipchase, who is one of our newer members, and she is going to talk about her experience so far. And Neil Suchbury, who is one of our original members, and he will be discussing a proposed idea with Cathal McCaig, who is a Wellcome Trust Fellow, and to give us some understanding of what we can be involved in. And now it's over to Liz. Good morning, I'm Liz, and I'm a fairly new member of a patient public involvement group. Uh, and I'd like to tell you why I became involved. Uh, I've always been blessed with pretty good health, so I knew very little about hospitals and doctors. And five years ago, I barely knew that um, PPI groups existed, uh, let alone knew what, the, the, what they actually did. Uh, but that changed when I rather casually took part in a trial of a device designed to collect cells from the esophagus, uh, which was known as the cytosponge. Uh, the sample uh, would then be examined to look for any signs of cellular abnormalities. Uh, I was feeling perfectly well and healthy, so it was something of a surprise, indeed a shock, to be told that uh, I had in fact, as a result of this test, 
been diagnosed with esophageal cancer. But I was extremely lucky uh, because of the test. Uh, my cancer had been discovered at a very early stage uh, and it was re relatively simple uh, to remove it. I had just two uh, endoscopic treatments uh, and, and that was and enabled the cancer to be cut out from the surface of the esophagus. And uh, really within a few months of diagnosis, uh, I was cancer free again. Uh, just after this, my brother was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And pancreatic cancer is another one of those rather silent hidden cancers, which uh, don't manifest themselves until they are very advanced because there simply are no symptoms. And indeed, my brother was told that his tumour was inoperable, uh, which was pretty shattering news for him. In fact, he then had um, chemotherapy, uh, a prolonged uh, process of chemotherapy, uh, and he was then told that uh, the tumour had shrunk sufficiently that the surgeons at Addenbrooke's uh, were able to carry out what sounds to me like a pretty heroic operation, a Whipple procedure, which involves removing the tumour and uh, tissue adjacent to it, and then doing uh, a certain amount of replumbing to get everything working again. Fortunately, it all went very well, and he began to recover. And when he began to feel, as he put it, almost human again, he then had to have another grueling session of chemotherapy. The huge difference in our experiences brought home to me just how important early diagnosis is. And I wanted to do anything I could to support new techniques like the cytosponge. The consultant treating me had already mentioned that I might like to join a PPI group. And then I came across a notice in my GP's surgery about the Experimental Cancer Medicine Center's PPI group, which was looking for new recruits. Uh, so naturally I applied. And here I am three years into it. The group was very welcoming and I found the training and work that we do is really interesting. Uh, although I used to work in a lab, uh, I haven't looked at any sort of scientific papers for about 10 years. So the opportunity to learn about current research in cancer has been both fascinating and stimulating. Having an opportunity to read and discuss research protocols from a patient's point of view means that the group can sometimes suggest really quite small changes that will make um, the whole process slightly more patient-friendly. And I believe that a patient input at an early stage can be of real hope to real help to researchers and clinicians as they plan how their work can be brought to fruition. We can also make ourselves useful through reading the information sheets and consent forms for patients who are being invited to take part in the clinical trial, because it's very important that they're as clear, straightforward and understandable as possible uh, to a layman who doesn't know any medical terms in particular. Although the pandemic has rather switched attention away from cancer research to COVID research, there's still work for us to do. And thanks to Zoom, we're still able to meet and discuss new projects that aim to improve the treatment and outcomes for cancer patients. And, and we're also able to continue with some of our training. I'm 
very, very grateful for what cancer research has done for me. And it feels very good to be able to pay back that debt in some very small way, as I am doing. Uh, have I found any downsides to this? Um, only the National Health Service's passion for acronyms, which makes reading almost any document um, something of a struggle as you try to remember what on earth all these letters mean. Uh, I might add that uh, acronyms don't always mean the same things to different people. Uh, for farmers and people like me who work in reproductive research, AI does not stand for artificial intelligence. Thanks very much for your attention. Hello there, my name is Cahill McCaig and I'm a PhD student and radiology registrar based at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge. Today I'll talk to you about uh, some AI tools which we're developing as a team um, to be used in the diagnosis and follow-up of patients with ovarian cancer. So the agenda for the talk today will be to cover uh, what ovarian cancer actually is and why, we will, uh, why we're working on developing AI tools for the segmentation of ovarian cancer on CT scans. And lastly, trying to understand how patients feel about the development of uh, these tools and their use in their care in the future. So ovarian cancer represents six most commonly diagnosed cancer among women in the world and uh, causes more deaths per year than any other cancer of the female reproductive system. In the UK each year, about 7,400 new cases are diagnosed and 60% of these will be diagnosed at an advanced stage. The disease typically presents in postmenopausal women um, um, with just a few months of abdominal pain and distension of symptoms, so nothing very specific. Um, and although the treatment uh, can be curative in most patients who are diagnosed at an early stage, sadly, um, in patients diagnosed with an advanced disease, the disease is characterized by many current episodes of disease um, separated by progressively shorter disease-free intervals, um, ultimately culminating in chemotherapy resistance and sadly the most common cause of death from the disease is bowel obstruction. So the term ovarian cancer itself actually is a little bit of a misnomer. Um, so the disease, uh, high-grade serous ovarian cancer, which is the most common type, actually develop, develops from the, the distal end of the fallopian tube. Um, and by the nature of the anatomy of the abdominal cavity, once the disease develops um, in the fallopian tube, there's actually no natural barrier to, to sequester it. So it actually is free to spread throughout the abdomen. And the most common uh, sites for the disease to, to be uh, presenting is the underside of the diaphragm, the surface of the liver, around the spleen, um, and also around the small bowel and the mesentery. So um, as the disease spreads to these different sites, um, so the, the tumors themselves actually start to develop slightly differently. So their uh, genomic and immunological landscapes actually start to diverge. Um, and this is important because it means that within a single patient, we will actually get a slightly different disease response between tumours and actually sometimes within the same tumour. So uh, the difference um, in genomic uh, makeup between different disease sites is called uh, 
intracyte heterogeneity and um, secondly the, the the slight difference within the same disease site is actually called uh, intracyte tumoral heterogeneity so this this difference presents a, a real problem for us when we're trying to treat patients with ovarian cancer um, and uh, unfortunately it actually can't be quantified easily using the kind of methods that we use in the clinic today so things like ct scans and, and blood tests so our team and others are, are trying to develop techniques which can actually analyze and quantify the extent of the whole disease burden um, and also uh, understand the degree of difference or heterogeneity between disease sites so um currently um the assessment of response to disease is uh, is characterized by a system called RESIST. Um, so uh, basically uh, what we do is we, uh, we uh, look at the CT scan, we find a few uh, lesions. These are just arbitrarily chosen and we measure them at the time when the patient is being diagnosed and also after uh, some treatment, so on follow-up uh, scans. And we measure them, at, you know, kind of at successive intervals and um, on the basis of whether the, the measurement has got bigger or smaller, we're able to say whether the disease has uh, stayed the same, whether it's uh, uh, you know got smaller and, and the patient is responding to treatment, or whether uh, it's actually got worse and, and the patient isn't responding. And so this sort of assessment uh, forms the basis of kind of most clinical trials in not just ovarian cancer, but in many other solid, uh, solid, uh, solid tumor cancers. Um, uh, but it, it has some shortcomings and uh, the next slides will illustrate those. So this, uh, for those of you who can see the, the image on the screen, uh, this slide on the left is uh, of a patient who was diagnosed with uh, ovarian cancer. And you can see this uh, central, central lesion here in the middle uh, in what we call the lesser sac. Um, uh, so between July and August, uh, the patient had uh, chemotherapy using the kind of standard treatments, which is cisplatin and paclitaxel. Um, and if we look in the next image, we can see that uh, on the baseline scan, this lesion had measured 35 millimeters in longest dimension. And actually when we measured again on follow-up, it's actually grown to 51 millimeters. So this is a greater than 20% increase um, and was classified by, uh, by the RISIS criteria as progressive disease. However, if we look a little bit more closely at the image, we can actually see that the reason for this uh, increase in size is because there's a fluid level that's developed uh, within the tumor. And what we think has actually happened is that the, the chemotherapy has worked. All these cancer cells have died and they've released uh, fluid, um, which is actually uh, responsible for this increase in size. So uh, by the RESIST criteria, this patient would have been categorized as progressive disease, uh, their chemotherapy would have been stopped and you know they've been started on the second line treatment but actually we can see if you look a little bit more closely at the image that this patient is responding to treatment so um this case um and you know can be documented many others uh, and shows the reason why we if we could develop an alternative method to resist that would quantify the whole disease burden not just some kind of select arbitrarily chosen lesions it would have huge utility um, so our goal as a team is to create an AI program which can automatically segment or delineate out all of the ovarian cancer 
um, um, and to do this automatically would allow us to uh, to to quantify the volume of disease, not just measure kind of unidimensional um, dimensions um, like uh, is used in RESIST. And the second thing that it would allow us to do would be to unlock uh, more advanced um, AI tools um, which exploit something called radiomics. Um, and it's something I'll mention a little bit later. So this uh, image is a video of a CT scan, which I've segmented. Um, and the purpose is to illustrate the diversity of regions where uh, ovarian cancer can present. So we can see it's around the liver, around the spleen, around the small bowel, um, moving further down all the way into the pelvis. So um, when, we, when we segment out or draw around these regions, um, that allows us then to do automatic volumetric analysis. So actually quantifying in cubic centimeters how much disease actually exists. And this is a far more accurate uh, way of assessing uh, a disease response, um, so measuring the, the, the change in volume before and after treatment. Um, it's far more accurate than using something like Resist, but to do this requires a huge amount of time, uh, so it's not practical to do in a clinical setting. So this scan, for instance, took me about two and a half hours to segment out, um, so it wouldn't be practical to use um, for patients normally, um, but um, if we could develop it um, a tool that would automatically do this in an accurate way would have huge utility. So we've actually, uh, our team are actually working to develop something like this, which can uh, segment out uh, ovarian cancer on CT scans in a matter of seconds. Um, and uh, this slide shows the diversity of shapes of ovarian cancer. Um, and this presents a challenge for a human. Um, and so it also presents one for an AI, but, um, but, but all of these different lesions, you can see some of them are spherical, some of them are more linear. Um, these have all been segmented out by, uh, by uh, an AI algorithm. So uh, this, this um, challenge to automatically segment out ovarian cancer on CT scans fits into a bigger pipeline, um, which is a project fund, funded by the Wellcome Trust. Um, and its aim is to extend the utility of standard of care CT scans uh, from, a, from, a, from a, uh, an investigation that's you know, qualitatively assessed by a radiologist kind of scrolling up and down an image into something that's kind of automatically uh, uh, interpreted by a computer and the computer is able to segment out all of the lesions and also apply these almost second generation models which are able to convert the, the grayscale image that we see on our screen into actually into data. Um, and using these uh, techniques, which are called radiomic techniques, it's able to cluster similar regions together and actually uh, tell us a little bit about the texture of the tumor. Um, on a kind of a, on a, on a, on a, on a deeper level, essentially. Um, and using these tools, um, further AI models are able to integrate not only the insights we gain from these radiomic habitats and, and, and textures, but also through um, insights that we've got from the volumetric assessment and also from the biopsies that have been taken and and also the patient's kind of older medical records and their blood tests and their uh, observations and, and things like that. All of these 
all of these different multimodal data streams can be combined in, um, in prediction models, which are able to, first of all, uh, predict whether a patient will respond to one or other treatment, and also give us prognostic information about um, what the future holds for these patients. So, so these, these tools are, you know, uh, only available through kind of the advancements made in high performance computing but they could have huge impact for ovarian cancer patients, particularly uh, because of the diversity of uh, heterogeneity within the same patient. Uh, these, these things aren't, uh, it's not possible to quantify these things at the moment, but um, with, with high performance computing, we can actually quantify these things and, um, and use those insights to, to deliver more personalized and more effective treatments for patients in the future. However, um, notwithstanding all of the effort that's gone into the development of these treatments and these uh, techniques, uh, they'll be of absolutely no use if our patients don't um, accept them. Um, and uh, during a, a junior investigator network group meeting earlier this year, an expert's patient spoke about how no treatment should be developed for a patient without patient input. And I think that, uh, that viewpoint really encompasses this element of our project. So we're, we're developing those techniques, but um, for them to have any use, we need to understand how patients feel about them and whether they would trust them and accept them. So to do this, we are conducting a series of interviews with patients who've uh, been uh, diagnosed um, and investigated for ovarian cancer. Um, and uh, we will then uh, kind of disseminate those findings and, and use them to form a, a, a survey, which we will uh, Kind of share with ovarian cancer patients from around the UK to actually understand um, how patients generally feel about um, AI involved in their care. So the, the qualitative interviews involve understanding the patient journey, understanding um, uh, their experience of being investigated for ovarian cancer and, um, uh, and also how they would feel about AI tools being used for their care in the future. So, um, you know, what comes to mind when they think about the term AI? You know, do they think about something associated with um, the kind of farming sector? Do they think about uh, Siri? Do they think about Alexa? Um, do they think about, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger's Terminator? Um, and um, how they feel about, um, uh, you know, a machine potentially taking over responsibility for interpreting a scan of theirs in the future. You know, would they trust the result? Um, how would they feel about um, a machine making a mistake? Who would they blame if there was a mistake in the interpretation of the scan? Um, and then kind of wider questions, like how would they feel about AI having access to all their medical records? And how might they feel if, um, you know, commercial entities or, you know, large tech companies, maybe like Google or Amazon, how they feel if, if those if those parties were involved in uh, designing um, or you know kind of supporting the design of, of these tools? Um, so these tools present uh, you know I think uh, huge possibilities and maybe the opportunity to transform how we deliver care, not just in ovarian cancer but more widely in medicine. But they also present a lot of questions. So these are things we need to understand if we're to kind of safely implement implement them in a way that patients can trust.
Hi, my name is Neil Stutchbury. I've been involved in PPI for four years or so now, and I'm also the lead uh, governor at Cambridge University Hospitals, Anbrooks, and I co-chair the patient advisory group for the cancer, new cancer research hospital. I'm also uh, chair of our local patient and partnership group in our, for our local surgery. So I'm really passionate about patient participation participation and um, advocacy on all sorts of areas which directly affect patients, for example, new services at the hospital or new scientific projects. So I thought I'd just give you a few general points on how I go about looking at research proposals from a public and patient involvement point of view. Uh, and then sort of apply them to uh, Dr. McCaig's uh, presentation uh, and proposal that he's, he's uh, described. So the first thing that normally we see in a proposal is uh, a bit of background about what it's what the proposal is all about. And uh, good proposals um, are very easy to understand. They're not full of lots of scientific jargon and acronyms. When they are, it's very obvious that the reader is going to get lost right in the very first paragraph. So it's really important to try and keep this piece as understandable and accessible as possible if you're expecting patients to be reviewing them. Uh, secondly, there has to be a good rationale for the work, good, good reasons for doing it, and a good precedent um, in the scientific um, literature to suggest that the research uh, project is going to have a good chance of success. After that, I'm looking out for some good and clear objectives and outcomes. Um, sometimes I find this area is particularly vague and not at all clear what um, the real objective is. Uh, so, for example, I have seen it written occasionally saying, um, the objective is to improve the way patients are treated for sort of XYZ cancer. Um, and I would uh, certainly question that. It's just not specific enough. Um, the outcomes of the research are really important too. For the, this will greatly influence whether you can attract people to participate in the research, uh, whether they're patients or just members of the public. I think if it's clear that the outcomes are worthwhile, and going to benefit patients and going to benefit society at large, then people are much more likely to come and join in and help you uh, run the run the program. And fourthly, um, the there's got to be some clear benefits um, and a reasonable impact on the participants themselves. So if you're expecting the participants to involve themselves in some way, which could be to join in video calls or to come in to the hospital, for example, to have, for, for example, for a clinical trial, then um, the, the ask on those participants does need to be, you know, proportionate and reasonable for the research that's being taken place. I did see, for example, on a large clinical trial um, under, undergoing, un, uh, designed by a um, pharmaceutical company, um, they required the patients to come in 
once a week, every week, for 52 weeks in the year in order to attend a clinic, in order to get some treatment and have tests and measurements and so forth. That meant that they didn't have any opportunity to go on holiday or any time off in an entire year, which I thought was really quite unreasonable. And they should have thought about how the patients could be uh, treated, for example, in the community, or even had a week or two off from the, from the trial. So those are the sorts of things I look out for, reasonable impact on participants. Um, and also patients or participants need to understand the benefits to them. Uh, so often I see um, a section called benefits to patients. And in this section, it doesn't really say any benefits at all. It just says we cannot guarantee any benefits to patients who participate. And uh, I don't think that's really enough. They're, they're obviously covering their back here. But I think there should be always some suggestions of what benefits may come about without guaranteeing anything. But to outline what those benefits may be, um, possibly to the individual or more widely to research and society in general. And I think, you know, when a patient is deciding whether to join in on a trial or a, 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 um, in a project, they will be weighing up the benefits to themselves, the benefits to the wider society and the risks they're going to undertake. And they'll take a balance on that. So, for example, if they are in a late stage cancer trial and suffering from that themselves, um, it's going to be a very personal decision as to whether the possible benefits to them outweigh the side effects. And uh, it's really no saying as to how a patient will respond to that. And this is an area where you writing the proposal could influence your recruitment. And finally, in this section, um, this is a sort of soft thing, but what I do look out for is indications that the scientists who are making the proposals really care about their research, and really care about the people who uh, they're asking to join in with them. Um, there are many examples where it just looks like a transaction between the scientists and the patients, particularly for clinical trials, I might say. Um, but there are also other good ones. Uh, I've seen some excellent ones from the university, for example, uh, where there is clear um, indication that the scientists really care about what the um, participants will get out of it, how they'll be treated, and the sort of consideration they'll make. For example, I commented on a, a proposal to help uh, deaf children use um, cochlear implants for the very first time. These are quite difficult to use because it's very difficult to filter out the sounds you want to hear from the sounds you don't want to hear. And children need quite a lot of training and patient um, understanding in order to help them to get the best out of this new technology. And it's very clear that the scientists who proposed this project did an awful lot of work with uh, young people in order to understand how their project should be undertaken. And it was highly tailored to the individual's needs. And that would be a good example of showing that the research the researcher really cares about their research. So then I thought I'd now move on to uh, the specific example of Dr. McCaig's uh, work on using artificial intelligence to interpret ovarian cancer um, scans. 
So I was uh, first asked to comment on this actually back in February of, of this year. And uh, I was doing that as part of the CUH PPI panel. And I wrote back a few comments on this. Uh, but I have to say overall, I thought this was actually very easy to understand in terms of the rationale and the objectives. The proposal was clear, it was easy to read. There was very little technical jargon on it. So it sort of ticked the first few boxes. Um, there was one question I asked on this though, which was perhaps could have been a little clearer on it, which was why patients have been asked their views on AI in the first place. And it seemed to me pretty clear that um, it's a good thing to use AI to help interpret scans. It's going to be quicker, more accurate, particularly on measurements and outlining and so forth. And I just wondered why there would be a question on whether AI would be useful in this area. Then I thought, well, actually, maybe that's not the question. Maybe the question is, um, is AI going to be used in a supervised or unsupervised way to look at these scans? And clearly, if AI has been used in an unsupervised way without any intervention or checking by human beings in a completely automatic fashion, then I could imagine patients could be extremely concerned about that particularly if it missed a diagnosis that was picked up by a human agent. So that was one of the comments I made on it. And um, the other comment I made on it was just to, to do with patient care here. The, the proposal is to have uh, Zoom calls with patients to talk about their reaction to the use of AI on these scans, and also other points uh, such as whether an AI robot should be inspecting patient records, for example. And it seemed to me that this may require patients talking about their experience with ovarian cancer with others on a Zoom call. So I pointed out that had to be done with extreme care because different people uh, respond very differently in terms of sharing that kind of personal information. So those are just a few points um, from uh, Dr. McCaig's paper using the principles that or some of the principles that I use in, in looking at PPI um, proposals. Thank you very much to Jean, Neil, Liz and Cathal for those very interesting talks. And also a thank you to Rebecca Bradley, who is also joining us for the session. Rebecca is also the co-lead for the ECMC PPI group. So thank you to you all for joining us now. Um, we've had lots of very interesting questions come through whilst we've been listening to your talks. Um, and also a, a special thank you to Liz for a very inspiring and eloquent talk. So thank you very much, Liz. There's been lots of thumbs up for your talk. Um, so I'll make a start on going, um, answering some of, asking you some of the uh, more popular questions. So um, this maybe this could be to Rebecca, perhaps. Um, do you have to have had cancer to get involved with the PPI group? No. Um... You have to have had experience of cancer for the ECMC PPI group. So whether that's you yourself have had cancer or a close friend or relative have had cancer and you've had some caring responsibilities. And we do that just because it's a big commitment. As um, Neil mentioned, sometimes trials are asking you to do things like come in every single week and knowing the kind of side effects 
and the fatigue and the way patients will feel during that is very important when you're considering these protocols. So we do ask for you to have some experience of cancer. But if you're interested in PPI and don't have that experience, there's loads of other groups around the biomedical campus that you can get involved in that we can signpost you to. Thank you. Um, Liz, we have a question for you. Um, what is the key lesson that you've learned in your experience with PPI? Oh gosh, um, um, that's difficult. Um, <laughs> I think I think um, that the, the, the key lesson was that actually um, being a member of the group has given more to me than I think I've given um, uh, to, to the researchers uh, who's, who I've been commenting on. I've been really, I really have been stimulated by uh, hearing what sort of research is going on and, and what, what sort of things patients are being asked to participate in and actually thinking about um, what, what motivates people to take part in trials. I think that's a very interesting topic. Thank you, Liz. Um, Rebecca, maybe this, this question might also be for you too. How do you think we can best involve more people from diverse backgrounds to contribute to our PPI groups? I mean, maybe to you, Neil, also as well, Neil, you have, you're in many of these patient groups. I can kick off, Neil, if that helps. I think this is something we are absolutely keen to do, and it's something that we are trying to do in every which way we can, but... It's something at the moment we're not reaching our goals at and it's something we'd like to get better at. So we'd really, to be honest, welcome any suggestions from you, the public, anyone watching. If you've got places that you think would be a really great place to come and talk about PPI, myself, Neil, Liz, some other members of our group are happy to come and talk and do some recruitment drives there. But really, it's any suggestions from anyone are very welcome on this. Neil, did you have anything else? Yeah, yeah, this is a really important thing to be able to do because when you look at the profile of well, both the PPI groups that I'm a member of, um, we are pretty much look the same apart from some are men and some are women, but most of us of a certain age. And uh, we all have had some personal experience with cancer, which is a, a good thing. Uh, I was involved with a small project to try and improve the diversity of the other PPI group that I'm involved in. Uh, and we reached out to some of the um, BAME groups, for example, in the, in, in the hospital, which are well-established now and very active, and also externally. Um, we found with the external groups, though, that they do get uh, approached a lot by groups like us trying to improve diversity. And we didn't get a particularly encouraging response. It seemed to us like we were just asking the same question as everyone else was, and they were inundated with such requests. So we had better, better response from the internal groups. The other area we looked at is trying to attract younger people. And um, we have had some, uh, some success with, with that. But it is uh, an ongoing challenge, this, and very important that we do reflect the population who are um, experiencing uh, cancer issues um, in our region. And I think also it reflects in how much time people may be concerned about committing to being in a PPI group. I mean, as Jean said in her introduction, we the group doesn't meet that frequently, but people might be concerned about the amount of time they need to commit to um, to be involved, and that might be 
you know, to do with work commitments as well. Um, Kathal, I wanted to ask you a question. Um, so Neil mentioned in his talk that, that he had looked at your proposal earlier in the year when you presented it to the PPI group. Um, what changes did you make after hearing the, the group's thoughts and did that change your plans for your research project? Yeah, we uh, uh, changed our, our whole project focus fundamentally. So uh, we actually had feedback from 11 um, reviewers and uh, I was blown away by the quality of the feedback we got. I don't mean their interpretation of the quality of our work, but rather the detail that they gave us. So everything from kind of like grammatical corrections uh, to um, asking for clarifications on certain topics. Um, so Neil has, I didn't realize it was Neil, but he's given away his identity as reviewer 11 because um, <laughs> we had, uh, I can remember his comments, uh, comments specifically because just as he was saying about the Zoom, um, uh, the, the, the issues with conducting kind of focus group um, discussions on sensitive topics and the, um, the willingness, I suppose, for everybody to contribute given the fact that topics were very sensitive. So we actually, on the basis of that advice, and I have to say the other reviewers as well, but uh, we actually decided to change how we are running our project completely. So we went from doing focus groups to actually doing one-to-one -one interviews. And we've um, broadened this out from being a PPI project to actually um, running a, a standalone qualitative study with some quantitative uh, survey elements. So after, um, after being buoyed on by the feedback we got from the reviewers, because was roundly very positive and um, we decided to apply for full um, ethical approval so that process took almost the whole time from when uh, the PPAI panel looked at our proposal up to November last year so it was it was a long chunk of time but we now have approval so we're rolling out and hoping to start uh, interviews um, well at the start of January slash middle of February so we'll see but thanks a million for the uh, the feedback it really was I can't stress enough how invaluable it was Thank you, Cathal. And so you mentioned about the qualitative interviews. Will you involve patients in the sort of the, the, the setup or the participation of those interviews? Will you revisit that? Um, so uh, patients, I, I, if I'm interpreting that correct question correctly, I, did, did it mean if patients were going to be involved in actually, actually doing the interviews? Just involved maybe in, in your interpretation of the, the data that you might collect from those interviews. Yeah, so what we're what we're planning to do is um, it depends how things go, but we 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 um, hope to involve some kind of like certain amount of patients who've got a particular insight and particular interest in what we've done, and I think we're probably going to involve them in the interpretation of the data. Yeah, and um, I know that sometimes expert patients have been actually included as authors on publications, so that's actually something that we're thinking about doing once. Uh, we get everything up and running. It depends. You know, we've got 15 interviews and stuff, so it's very difficult to predict what comes of that because we're trying to be very unbiased in our kind of prejudgment of them. But it's my hope that we'll be able to get some expert patients actually um, deeply involved and on the author list. Thank you, Cathal. We've had lots more questions, but I'm, I'm afraid in the interest of time, we need to move on. So we will try to address some of the other questions after this, um, when the event's finished. Um, so thank you so much to Liz, Neil, Cathal and Rebecca for joining us.